Welcome to the DTB podcast for November 2021, volume 59, number 11. My name is David Fazakli and I'm DTB's deputy editor. Hello, I'm James Cave, editor-in-chief. Many thanks for joining us for this podcast in which we'll talk about some of the content of the uh, November issue of DTB. Uh, I perhaps should give a quick apology if there are any background noises. There are builders next door and I have a dog that's sleeping and snoring next to me. So apologies if there's any rumblings in the background. Uh, Before we discuss uh, November issue, just highlight that we're recording this on the 19th of October. And tomorrow, October the 20th, is World Evidence-Based Healthcare Day. This is an annual event, and the theme for this year is the role of evidence in an infodemic and the need for trustworthy evidence-informed health information. And on the World Evidence-Based Healthcare Day site, which is worldebhcday.org, there's lots of information about the day and a series of blogs that talk about uh, the role of information in an infodemic. And I'm pleased to say that we have submitted a DTB blog and we reflect on the role of independent drug bulletins. Uh, James, any thoughts or comments on our blog? Yes, yeah, so we thought it was important this year to offer a contribution to this. As we've sort of picked up in the last few months, we have some concerns about the strategic direction of NICE and MHRA and their approach towards pharma. And I think it's really important that we put across with so much information um, being shared out there. I think we were at a BMJ editors uh, meeting recently and the BMJ is talking about 200 million downloads of information off their collective um, site. Remarkable amount of information out there. And it's really important that amongst this sea perhaps of evidence that actually you can still find really trustworthy evidence-based information for healthcare. And that's what we try and do at DTB and across independent drug bulletins. I guess what was good for us was was just to remind um, people of, of the presence of, of independent drug bulletins. They've been around since the late 50s. Um, there's an international um, society that supports the, the development and promotion of, of drug bulletins. And in it, here we have this network promoting rational prescribing across the world. So, you know, in most countries, or or certainly in a lot of countries, there are these independent bulletins bringing you um, assessed, evidence-informed information about new medicines. And with the complexity of medicines, we just felt it was important, you know, just to say that there are these sources out there um, which bring you high quality information. Exactly. And rather like local radio, they don't have a lot of money to shout. So, you know, these, these, uh, uh, drug bulletins are often, you know, quite small affairs working really hard to provide evidence to people. And we're very lucky at DTB to have the sort of back engine of the BMJ um, supporting us. And, and that obviously is a really important element of our work. And unlike local radio, there's no adverts. <laughs> so yes. so you, haven't, you haven't got to fast forward while the adverts are on. Precisely. Okay, thank you very much. Um, This issue of DTB, we're going to talk about the editorial, look at a forum article, and also the review article that talks about a new drug for osteoporosis. So start with the editorial written by our board member, Barbara. Um, She raises the question of whether there are some drugs we should be avoiding. What what were her, what's her argument? Yeah, so this is a a really interesting article um, where 
Barbara goes into discussing actually there should be drugs that we should avoid. And she's worked with Prescrea for many years. And Prescrea is France's version of an independent drug bulletin. And uh, they every year produce a list of drugs that they feel you should avoid prescribing. So, for example, in 2019, there were 93 drugs they suggested that you should avoid prescribing. And in 2020, there were actually 105 drugs they felt that you should avoid. Um, and what they mean by that is that these are drugs that perhaps disproportionately might harm you, or there may be a lack of effic efficacy, or simply there may be better alternatives that are safer or more effective around that you should consider first. And Prescrea is totally independent. Um, it's uh, a subscription-based uh, um, bulletin, and uh, they have a very sophisticated system of drug reviews to get to that uh, position. So it's, it's fascinating. And what Barbara does with her co-writer, um, Agnes Vitri, is she looks at those 93 drugs from 2019 that are listed by Prescrea as being drugs that you ought to avoid. And she looks at what's happening in Australia, in Canada and the UK to see what our approach to those drugs might be. And what I found particularly interesting is obviously in Australia, and it comes down to the reimbursement schemes for whether these drugs are funded at, at national expense, um, that in Australia there was a far fewer of them were available at public expense than, than than we see in the UK. Well, this is it. I mean, that's right. I think out of the 93, 16 medications um, deemed harmful by Prescrea were, were still publicly funded in, in Australia. In Canada, it was 13, and in the UK, it's 76. Um, so, I mean, that may be partially the structure, I suppose, of medication reviews, um, because I think in the UK, whilst there may be drugs that are licensed and publicly funded, the strength of NICE and other guidance perhaps may reduce those drugs actually being prescribed on a regular basis. But it did highlight the fact that in the UK, Virtually everything that is licensed, unless there's, for some reason it's been, it been blacklisted, everything is available for prescription in primary care. And it does raise the question that, you know, as evidence moves on, there is a question whether there should be perhaps a review of whether those drugs should be still available at public expense. Exactly. And I think for listeners who are sort of thinking, what are these 93 drugs they're talking about? And we're talking about some that I think we'd all agree probably have got very little value, things like phenofibrates in uh, reduction of cardiovascular disease, but also memantine, gliptins, denusumab are all on that list of drugs to avoid according to Prescrea. And, and maybe this is the start of a dialogue, isn't it, to say that are there some drugs that, that are now third, fourth line, or even shouldn't be used at all? And, and how can we identify those? There's a bigger question of if you've got this list, does it actually mean that clinicians follow it and there's probably some work to be done about how to operationalize this sort of um, list of, of less attractive drugs to see whether clinicians will actually follow it. Exactly. And I think the other issue for, for primary care, of course, is some of these drugs are prescribed initially in secondary care, and then we're asked to continue prescribing them under a shared care agreement. And the question is, if you you know, having read the articles and perhaps made up your mind that this is a drug that you want to avoid, how do you square that circle? How can you turn around to a patient who's already on the drug or to a, a senior clinician in a hospital and say, do you know what, I don't really think this drug should be used. 
So some in- difficult sort of issues as well around um, how you make sure that, that this is applied across the patch rather than just in isolated places. But certainly an interesting point to start a discussion as to whether, you know, should every drug be available all, all the time at public expense? But uh, I think we're not going to change that overnight, but one to follow up on. Okay, let's turn to the forum article. Uh, this one looks at uh, delabeling penicillin allergy. Um, key issues, James? Yeah, great article by Mike Wilcock and, and Neil Powell and, and something close to my heart. Um, so 6% of the adult population apparently believe that they are allergic to penicillin. Um, and about 75% of those labels occur before the age of three. And the issue which uh, Mike and Neil really clearly put across in this um, piece is that if you actually have a label of penicillin allergy, this is actually associated with poorer outcomes. You get more risk of, it, of serious hospital-acquired infections. Your length of stay in hospital is longer. And the risk of using more expensive um, antibiotics is also an issue. And the, the feeling is, looking at meta-analysis and systematic reviews, is that 95% of people who um, are labelled as penicillin allergic are probably wrongly labelled. 95%. So this is a... A big issue. And, and and Mike and Neil do talk about, you know, how difficult this is actually to deal. You know, how do we unpick this? Um, and they've uh, talked a little bit about some of the research that's going on at Space and Repeal um, and other, other research articles. Um, and also the sort of issue of if you do manage to make a correction and and get this right, how do you then actually make sure the whole system recognises that this person then isn't allergic to penicillin. So really big issue when it comes to prescribing, particularly around antibiotics. And, you know, this is this is really important stuff and uh, very useful article. And it left me thinking that, you know, if, if people feel that delabeling penicillin and allergy is difficult, that's probably because it is. <laughs> yes. Um, and there was no quick, you know, there are no quick answers to this at the moment. And what was what was helpful was just to set out all the barriers that currently exist yeah. and then to begin to think about how we might overcome them. I agree. And, I, and from my own personal experience, one of the things that I found most useful uh, and sometimes works is, is I can look back and sometimes patients have got a label of penicillin allergy and you look back through their medication list and you find they've been prescribed two or three courses of penicillin. Uh, and you ask them, you know, did you have a reaction at all? And they say, oh, no, I don't think so. And, you know, and I think one, you know, can think, well, OK, hang on a minute. This this looks like the allergy was put in before you had these penicillin prescriptions. So is there an opportunity here to change that? But, you know, it is a huge issue um, and one that I think the answer to this, to be honest, is to be really careful about labelling someone as penicillin allergic, particularly a child who has a course for of antibiotics for an ERT or a sore throat and they then get a viral type rash you've got to ask yourself is that just a viral type rash or is this really penicillin allergy because label them now and you're actually putting them at a disadvantage for the whole of the rest of their lives and it's exactly the same issue we were talking about earlier which is about de-prescribing it's, it's if you can stop the over prescribing from the start then you don't need to go through the de-prescribing process equally if you don't do the Overlabel from the start, you don't need to go through the delabeling de- process. And, and if we tackle it right from the beginning and really make sure that those uh, labels are correct at the start, we'll avoid the problem later on. Exactly right, yeah. 
Okay, thank you very much. Um, and then finally, our main article this month looks at a new drug for osteoporosis. What is it? So this is Romososumab, which is a monoclonal antibody that inhibits a particular protein um, produced by osteoclasts called sclerostin. Uh, and by inhibiting the action of this protein, it increases bone formation and decreases the normal bone turnover. So, um, so sclerostin is a what, a negative regulator? It's of a bone? negative regulator. It, it inhibits bone production. So by blocking it, you increase bone formation. Um, it's given by monthly injection for the year. And then uh, the recommendation is that patients then take an anti-resorptive treatment of some kind after that. So it's like a short-term year treatment for patients at high risk of fracture. And the evidence that we've got yes. for it. It's always the evidence, isn't it? Yeah. Where, so there are three uh, trials on women, postmenopausal women. FRAME, which was largely a primary prevention study. ARCH, which was largely a secondary prevention study. STRUCTURE, which was a funny study looking actually at bone mass density only in patients who'd previously been treated with alendronate. And we have one small study called BRIDGE, which looked at only about 400 men and only looked at bone mass density. But FRAME and ARCH, I suppose, um, are the ones that actually give you some idea of, of outcome. FRAME was a big study, 7,000 women, um, average age around 70, and they were given uh, Romososumab for 12 months or placebo and then Denosumab following that and they looked at fracture rates at 12 months. Um, what did we find? Okay, there was about a 70% relative reduction in the Romososumab group but actually absolute risk reduction was 0.5% fracture risk in the Romososumab group versus 1.8% fracture risk in the placebo group. And that's a number needed to treat of 77. If you look at clinical fractures, which I think is much more important, one of the problems with osteoporosis therapeutics is people often talk about these sort of, um, they're, they're sort of, they're not, are they fractures or not? They, they look at things like um, the reduction in bodies of vertebra over a year. So they measure the vertebral body's width at the beginning of the year. And if they drop by more than four millimetres or whatever the number might be they choose, they call that a fracture. And it may have had absolutely no clinical relevance to the patient. So clinical fractures, I think, are much more important. There were 1.6% of patients in the Romosuzumab group versus 2.5% in the placebo group. So that's a number needed to treat to prevent a clinical fracture after one year of about 112. And non-vertebral fractures, so the important stuff in my book, like hip fractures, nothing, no significant difference between the two groups. So that's, if you like, the evidence. Yeah, 70% relative risk reduction, but actually a number needed to treat of clinically relevant fractures, about 112. And a big fly in the ointment, which I think is most stark in the bridge study, which was in men, was cardiovascular risk. And the risk of cardiovascular ischemia in the bridge study, okay, very small number of men, 1.8% in the romosuzumab group versus nothing in the placebo group. So that's a number needed to harm of about 50. So this is where 
we have this balance issue between possibly number needed to treat of 112 versus a number needed to harm of about 50 perhaps. And this is why the EMA declined to license this drug initially in 2019 because they were concerned about the cardiovascular risks. And then they re-looked and they licensed it on the basis that it would only be used by specialist physicians experienced in the management of osteoporosis. So there we are, it's, an, it's another drug for the management of osteoporosis. It's expensive, I think it's 5,000 pounds a year. Um, so as we, as we conclude in our paper, it's possibly got a role in people who, you know, are very high risk of fracture and who can't tolerate other treatments, but long-term outcome, we just don't know. And uh, it's watch this space, I think. And certainly, well, looking at NICE have not yet covered it. They are covering it, but they haven't yet published their outcomes of their, their findings. Um, Scottish Medicines Consortium have approved it, but again, it's got to be provided with a patient access scheme, therefore presume it's a, at a, a lower lower cost, but again, to this high risk group. So a bit uncertain as to how widely it's going to be used. I think so. And I, I, I look forward to Prescria's drugs to avoid in 2022. Just in case. Just in case. I mean, certainly, I mean, we looked at Prescria's comment on it. Um, and in our article, we talk about, we, we, we summarise um, Prescria's comment, Australian prescriber's comment, and also the medical letter in America. And Prescria's take was that the efficacy was not really that much better than alandronic acid. Um, and they were concerned about this increase in cardiovascular events as well. So, yes, whether whether um, what, how it would appear on their, their list in the future remains remains to be seen. And any other thoughts about it? I mean, is practicality of its use as a... Where will it be given? Will it be given in primary care? Well, clearly not according to um, the licensing, um, although I suspect it may be a shared care issue. It's a very odd thing because you actually, it's it's an, it's given by injection, and but you need two injections a month. So to get the dose up to the correct dose, you actually have two, two injections, which I think is a little unfair. <laughs> um, but we'll see. I, I think... For me, the management of osteoporosis is still inadequate. We, we really haven't got the right drugs at the moment. Um, it feels to me, you know, they all have significant adverse events. They, they're all about reducing fracture risk for a short period of time, perhaps. And I, and I, you know, I still worry about the long-term effects of a lot of these drugs. So it feels a bit like the, the days of trying to prevent cardiovascular disease in the time of the fibrates. And we still haven't got the statin equivalent um, in the osteoporosis world, as far as I'm concerned. So we look forward to uh, the day when they appear. Okay, thank you very much. Um, you can find these and all our articles on our website, dtb.bmj.com. Uh, do let us know what you think of these podcasts. Great to have your comments. We've had a couple on uh, the iTunes site, and it was great, great to read them. So thank you for those. Uh, you can leave us ratings and comments there, and there's a link to the DTB iTunes podcast page on the notes that accompany this podcast. Or if you want to write to us directly, do so. Email us at dtb@bmj.com. So thank you for listening to us, and we hope you'll be able to join us next month for December's podcast. Thank you.